You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. I've, I've told you, I'm going to try to start today and just keep good on my promise that I'm just going to try and infect you with joy this Christmas season, this Advent season that we are in. Um, I, I'll show you in just a minute. I'm convinced that if you had to sum up Advent and what it means in a word, I think the word might be joy. And I'll show you that here in just a second. Um, and one of the reasons I want to do this is I, I genuinely think something everybody has in common is that everyone wants more joy. Everybody wants joy. You go the most religious or irreligious, you male, female, old, you know, anything. If you said, would you like more joy? Yeah. That's the answer everybody gives to that question. And the problem is there's not really a way in a worldly sense to get more joy. Because how do we do it in a worldly sense? I want my circumstances to change and my circumstances will therefore be the bringer of joy. But we all know the futility in that, don't we? Because if we're basing it on circumstances, then what happens is, um, if the circumstances give us joy, then what can happen is we know, even in that moment of joy or happiness or whatever it might be, that our circumstances could change and then our, this thing that we're thinking is joy is gone. And so if we want joy that transcends circumstances, we can't base our joy on circumstances. If we want joy that transcends circumstances, we can't base our joy on circumstances. And so these um, few weeks together, we're going to be looking at things about God specifically that should increase our joy, and especially at Christmas. I told you, I think if you summed up Christmas in this Advent season in a word, it would be joy. Let me make my case here. Um, you remember Zechariah and Elizabeth, when they hear that they're going to have John the Baptist, the angel says, you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Elizabeth heard she was pregnant in her old age. Mary was pregnant, and despite being a virgin, she was pregnant with the Christ child, and they go to see each other, and Elizabeth just hears Mary's greeting, and it says the baby in her womb leaped for joy. You just heard the Magnificat sung. Um, Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Then when they have John the Baptist, it says her neighbors and relatives rejoiced with her. What do the angels say to the shepherds? Good news of great joy. The Christ child is born. And then the wise men saw the star, and it, he really wanted you to get it here. He says, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. He's going, don't, don't miss this. This is joy, 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 joy. This word is repeated over and over and over. But it's not just, in case anybody's thinking, well, that's nice 2,000 years ago, but what about today? This has been a consistent theme throughout the Bible. In the 66 books of the Bible, if you look for um, rejoice or joy, uh, joyful, those kinds of words, in 66 books, it appears about 440 times. God is trying to get through to us that the Christian life is about joy. The Old Testament feasts, sometimes they give very explicit reasons why they're um, having the feasts. And it says the two main reasons that come up so that you would have remembrance of what Christ has done, what God has done, usually in the Exodus, you would have remembrance and also so you might have joy. 
Think about the New Testament. There's tons of examples. I'm just thinking of the one when the apostles were dragged before the authorities and they were imprisoned and beaten before them and publicly humiliated. And then it says they left. And what did they do? They rejoiced. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. This is a consistent theme throughout the Bible. And then you get to the end. And in Revelation 19, we look forward to this thing, the wedding supper of the Lamb, that the church is the bride of Christ. And listen to how it's described. This is John speaking. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It is right for us to have just unbelievable joy because of what God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. That God has saved people like us people that were apart from him, that were alienated from him and just put our hope and our trust and our faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross. And he has pulled us into relationship with him. That is the beauty of the gospel and we should rejoice in that. But here's what I want you to see today. Joy is not just something that we are to have towards God, but I wanna show you a couple times, one in particular, where we see that God looks at his people and rejoices. And when we realize that God rejoices over us, regardless of how good or bad we are, wherever we are in some scale that we've made up, when we realize that he rejoices over us simply because we are his people, that fuels our joy. And so you have God rejoicing over us and us just giving our joy because of what Christ has done on our behalf. And the Christian life should be marked by joy. So, let me just show you that, um, that old, old Christmas text that you're probably all assuming we're going to talk about today, Zephaniah chapter 3, right? Everybody probably just read that this morning out of hat. I'm just kidding. Yes, that's a real book, by the way, in case you're wondering. Zephaniah chapter 3, towards the end of the Old Testament. Um, and the, it, it starts with a story um, that uh, Israel had been promised to have special favor by God as they were obedient to him, demonstrating that they are his people. Not just by ethnicity or not just by geography, but um, God would show his special blessing to the Israelites, to Jerusalem in particular, the place where worship was centered. And so they are waiting for these promises to come to fruition. And so this is so uh, 2,600 something years ago. And you see, um, well, about 3,000 years ago, the kingdom split, Israel to the north, Judah to the south. Israel just kind of went off the rails. Judah kind of did this little number, had good kings and had bad kings and good kings and bad kings and went through these different cycles. There was one in particular, there was a king named Manasseh, who I'll just say was bad, he was supposed to protect the oppressed and protect those who were being oppressed, and instead he oppressed them. He um, he he had you know the, the the godliness that you were supposed to have, and then he looked at the world and kind of thought, what if we mesh those? And it eventually just became, let's just push God out. And so the next king, Josiah, had to come in and have these huge reforms in the kingdom. And so what happens in that southern kingdom is you've got now you've got the people that were there when Manasseh was there, who had brought in just this utter debauchery into the kingdom and turning away from God. And people went, well, that's kind of fun. Let's do that, even though they didn't have the blessing of God, and it was very obvious. But then you've got Josiah trying to come in and say, hey, this is what God says, and this is what we need to do. And so you can see you have a nation just split into two factions. 
And in that context, a guy named Zephaniah is sent by the Lord as a prophet to the southern kingdom in that tension that they have during the reign of King Josiah. What you'll see is you'll see that God is just, God is the judge, and it says he's going to essentially wipe out the bad and restore all his promises to Israel and save Israel. That, that's a summary of the book of Zephaniah. That's what he's going to say. Um, and we'll see this as a picture of the gospel, of our sovereign God who is judge over all, who sees the wickedness, who will, they, they will come to pay for it, and he, now we're going to see, he offers salvation to Israel by what he does, not by anything that Israel does. So I'm going to sum it up here for you. It's a little three-chapter book. In chapter one, he's saying judgment is coming to Judah because of the wickedness of Manasseh, and they need to repent. They need to turn to him. He talks about the day of the Lord is near. If you, if you don't know what the day of the Lord means in the scripture, we see an ultimate day of the Lord that will be coming someday when the, the final judgment falls from God, the day of the Lord. But also throughout history, especially Israel's history, you would see sort of many days of the Lord where, um, where God would step in and he would issue judgment in that moment. And so what he's saying is there's an ultimate day of the Lord coming, but God is about to, there's going to be a reckoning here because people have fallen away from him. This doesn't sound like joy. I promise this is getting joyful here in just a second. Um, this is about, the chapter one is all about God's serious response to sin and a demand that his people revere him again. Chapter two, he says, repent and turn to God and God's justice is gonna fall on your enemies and um, God's people are to seek refuge in him and him alone. The temptation then, as you can imagine, was you had this little nation of Israel, now it was split in two, now it's just the kingdom of Judah and you've got all these other pagan nations around them and if you're just a military strategist, you might go, we should do what those guys are doing and get in good with them. And God is saying, you are my people and you act differently. You trust in me. In chapter three, what Zephaniah is saying as he starts out, he tells them to turn from their pride and the oppression, turn to humility and love. Those words come up while there's still hope before this judgment falls. And what he does is he's looking at Israel and in Israel, you have those that are faithful to God and those that are not. And so what he does, the people that are not being faithful to God are really showing their true colors to say, we are not believers in Yahweh. We're, we, we believe in the might of this other nation. We, we want other things for ourselves. We want to follow our flesh. And so he's saying, they are not real, true believers in me. And so he actually goes through and does um, something that would have just been a huge slap in the face, which he equates the faithless Israelites, those that turn from him, he equates them with the pagan nations that live all around them. And he's going to talk about a faithful remnant in Israel that is faithful to him. There's the context. Here's what he says. The charge he gives to them is he says, wait for the Lord. Watch for the salvation of God. He says, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather the nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Yay, joy. I'm getting there, I promise. Uh, what did he just say? He said, I am jealous. I'm a jealous God, meaning I don't want your affections towards anybody else. I want them towards me. And then he says, I am the judge. And those are true statements, but the big thing is that's not the whole picture of God. If that is the whole picture of our relationship with God, then we should just walk around as the ultimate worrywarts because the God who is a just 
God, who is sovereign over all, ought to punish us as he does anybody else. But what we'll see is God is loving and God is gracious and we're to take heart. And he's telling them, take heart because God has a plan to turn this thing around. Watch this, verse nine. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones shall bring my offering. He's saying my fame is gonna extend out beyond just Israel. And he's gonna give two reasons why, we, why he's saying wait for my salvation and wait faithfully for my salvation. One is God says, I'm gonna punish evil. You don't wanna be on that team. And then he says he's going to create a community of worshipers from the entire earth that fear him. Verse 11, on that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For, when, for then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty. That's a good Bible word. You shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain, referring to Jerusalem, the place of worship. And he says, but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. What he just said is you've got Israel, you've got the whole nation, all the nations against God. You've got Israel now, the kingdom split in two. Now he's looking at Judah and he's saying there are some there who are actual followers of me and some who are not. And we're gonna find this faithful remnant who are truly my people. And it says that they need to be humble and lowly. And we can hear that and go, oh, they're so weak. That doesn't really work for me. I'm a, I'm a strong person. I'm a strong individual. And really, that's not what he's saying is these are weak people. They're simply just saying, I need God. I, I bend the knee to God. In fact, I would say they have to be probably strong to some degree. Why? Nation split. Then that little nation of the kingdom of Judah split. There's a remnant left. How hard is it to be a Christian, to be a follower of God when you feel like the people on your team keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller? It's hard. God doesn't need numbers. He needs his faithful remnant. You know how I know? Because that's what he had, and here we are. It worked. This faithful group of people, God did an amazing work through them and this gospel message went to the ends of the earth. And then here's what it says. It says, they shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, this is true Israel, true followers of God. They shall do no injustice, speak no lies, nor shall there be in their mouth a deceitful tongue for they shall all, get this imagery, graze and lie down and none shall make them afraid. One of the biggest pieces of imagery you see in the Bible over and over and over is this idea of a shepherd. Elders are called to shepherd a congregation. Pastors are called to shepherd people. Um, in the Old Testament, the, um, the kings oftentimes were told that they are actually shepherds of the people. And so what did he just say? He gives this illustration of, of like a sheep and you can picture Israel, if you picture them as sheep and you have all these nations and then you have your own kingdom that's kind of split in two and you have kings coming and going and it seems like we have the blessing of God. Now it seems like we don't. And you're a sheep and you're grazing. Um, you're eating like this. You're going, oh. and you are looking around. You are looking around for when God is finally gonna say enough with you and the enemy is gonna attack and you're done for. And all these leaders who were supposed to be shepherds before, it wasn't a safe place. 
And God says, what's going to happen? They shall graze. They shall lie down. Just picture, I just picture this big old fat sheep that's out there. And he's just eating without a care in the world and just is like, I'm done. And just plunks over on his side and is just laying there and falls fast asleep because he doesn't have a care in the world. What's he saying? He's saying there's a day coming where Israel, this is going to be you. Sing aloud, O daughters of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughters of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Now, this is, I think, an interesting comment here because it looks like it's written in the present tense. He's saying, um, rejoice and exult. Like, do it now. Um, and it says, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you, but we're reading it and going, but he's talking about a future day. Why is he talking about it like it's in the present tense? And very simply, what he's saying is when a prophet of God speaks and says, this is going to happen, you should live with the certainty in the present that it will happen someday. So you should start living like it now. I remember when we, uh, when we moved here and, um, and the Broncos won the Super Bowl. It was about six years ago then. They won the Super Bowl. And we were here. My kids were younger. So we're watching the Super Bowl. And they thought, this is so cool. And one of them, I won't say who, said, the Broncos won a Super Bowl for us. Because they thought they won it for us because we moved to Colorado. And I had to, ex I was about to clarify. And then I just went, yay, and sure. During that game, I remember watching it. I remember being pretty, like, I didn't even, I mean, I was brand new to Denver, so I was a little like, oh, I hope they win. That'd be fun, you know? And we're, we're trying to take on the culture here and everything, and so we're watching. But there were, like, nerves running through me. And then they won, and it was amazing. And then I've actually seen replays of the game, and I watch it totally different. Because I know the future. I know what's going to happen. And so I can watch it because I know the future. I live differently in the present. We just watched, um, one, of my, one of my favorite uh, stories at Christmas is The Christmas Carol. We watch every variation of that movie when it come, you know, that, we, that we have. We just watched The Muppets one last night, which is fantastic. We watched that. And if you remember, Ebenezer Scrooge. And he is living a selfish life. And what happens? He starts to, he, he gets visited and he gets visited the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, and then the ghost of Christmas, what? Yet the future, the yet to come. And all these other two are really just setting up what's about to happen. What happens? When he gets a glimpse of the future, all of a sudden he turns and he starts running around outside going, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas. And if you read the book, everybody sees him and everybody starts freaking out because they're like, well, what's the trick here? This is, this is Scrooge. Like we, we know this guy and he's running around and he's, he, he is, he has glimpsed of the future and it changes everything about how he lives his present. We can know the future and know what is coming for us. And Zephaniah is telling the Israelites, God is going to restore you and redeem you and save you. And you can know that, so live like it now. And here's what it says, because the Lord is faithful and he is able to save. It says, on that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion, that's the, where they worshiped. Let not your hands grow weak, 
The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. Here it is. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. The people that he is rejoicing over, this is very important, are his people. They are in the family of God, and that is why he rejoices over them. Why does God rejoice over Jim? Well, it's not because I'm a pastor, not because I opened the Bible or because I just read the Bible or I just prayed or anything like that or I, my, my sin is, you know, on the sin meter is not too high or whatever it is, something like that. That is not why. Why does God rejoice over me is because I am in the royal family. I am a son of the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so he looks and rejoices that I'm in his family. I am one of his people. And if you're in Christ, you are too. My kids sometimes, believe it or not, can make me mad. But they're in my family, always. I want to take a moment and try and convince you of something. Because my guess is, it is hard to believe that God rejoices over you regardless of how good or bad of a day you're having. One of the reasons why I think it's so difficult to say I can see the problem in someone's life or the sin in someone's life and I can separate it from the actual person. That's what God's doing. God sees our sin. He sees our mistakes. He sees our flesh. He sees some of our wicked ways. But he also sees us as a son or a daughter in his family. And God can make that distinction. You and I don't do that as well, do we? I I, I was amazed. I felt like there was a run in maybe like, early 90s, mid 90s, something like that, where I would watch garbage TV. And as I'm watching these like sitcoms and stuff, what I would hear over and over is somebody would do something that would offend somebody else. And the phrase was, that is unforgivable. I can never forgive you. What is it? You did something and now that is how I define you. Or think about if somebody gossips about you and it just really, it stings. And then all of a sudden you start to see them in light of that, Sin. It's hard to separate the person from the problem, the person from what they did. There, I guarantee there are either current or former um, presidents, senators, uh, mayors, congresspeople, anything. You just pick your leader that if they were to stand up and they were to say water is wet, you would go fact check them because you don't trust them. And you would look and somehow we have painted them, everything that comes out of their mouth must be wrong. And we can't separate the person from what they do. We had an interesting, there was a, um, there's a receiver in the NFL. This just came up. I think it was this last week, maybe a week before. And um, he has had trouble with his team and uh, with the law outside. I'll just say it like that. And there was something going around that he faked, it was on Twitter, he faked his vaccination card. And you don't have to be vaccinated to play in the NFL, but some of the, um, the protocols are different if you're vaccinated or unvaccinated. I saw that on Twitter, and without knowing anything else about it, without doing even the tiniest bit of research, I assumed he was guilty. Now, I've done a little bit of fact-checking, and it looks like it was garbage and someone just started a rumor. But what happened? He had some strikes against him publicly, and so when you see something negative, it just sort of feeds the narrative, doesn't it? 
And I haven't thought about this is a human being, this is a person. It's this is a person who does these horrible things. And so I assume if I hear a rumor about him, it's probably right. God can look and God can distinguish the person and the sin. I hope this connects. Let me, let me try and connect this for you. Because we don't act that way, since we smush together the person is defined by their sin, since we tend to operate that way, subtly what can happen is we go, how could God operate any way other than that? And so what I would tell you today is if we can change how we act towards other people, if we can change and start to go, this is the person and this is what they've done. I don't hate the person, I hate what they've done. If we can start to do that, then in our minds, I think we'll start to be able to understand God better and how he sees us. And that will increase our joy of knowing that he rejoices over us regardless of how good or bad we think we are in the moment. In fact, some of the best, um, some of the best advice we got, I think it was premarital counseling, was um, uh, they, we were, yeah, it was premarital, where they were talking about how to fight how to fight. And I remember like, oh, we'll never fight, but go ahead. I'll write this down for my friends or something. And we were getting our counseling and uh, premarital counseling. And, um, and they said, just remember when you're fighting to Jim, they said, you are not fighting Nikki. You are two people on the same team fighting a problem. That changes everything. Something happens, one of us offends or hurts or something, the other person. If I can say, instead of me going, I'm so mad at you, 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 to go, this is what hurt, this is what I, this is what I heard, this, this is how I'm feeling. Can we talk about fixing that? Two people on the same team trying to fix a problem. But the world, boy, I mean, this is why people hide their sin is because they know that if they share, we're gonna go, ah, that's who you are now. It's not how God sees people. If you have to do a performance review with somebody and there's something you got to kind of smack them pretty good for, do it. Do what you need to do. Try and end with something positive. And what starts to happen when you do something like that, all of a sudden what you start to do is you go, is you're reinforcing to them, I'm not going to just see you in light of the worst thing that you have done. That is not what defines you. I see you as a human being. And it also, it not only communicates that to them, but it also can reinforce it in our own minds. Or like with a kid, if you've got kids and you've got a, or grandkids or whatever, and you've got to say something to them that might be kind of hard to say, if you say the hard thing, and then if you can end by throwing your arms around them, if you can end by sharing some things that you love about them that are great, you'll start to see in your mind and heart what it starts to do is it starts to distinguish, I love this person, I just don't like what they did. And can help them start to see, I'm loved, I just messed up. If we start to see people like God does, maybe we'll really start to believe that God rejoices over us because we're his, and that will increase our joy. <clears throat> when God sees us, he looks past our sin in a sense. He sees through the lens of Christ on the cross and the payment for sin that he has made on our behalf. If we do the same to others, maybe we'll start to believe that God really sees us that way. <clears throat> now, the big question could be, doesn't that mean that we won't do good works, that we won't be obedient to him and live for him? Oh, good, he sees us this way regardless of, okay. I, I hesitate to share this publicly. You'll see why, but I will. Um, <clears throat> I have historically not been awesome at doing dishes. 
I hate doing dishes. The only person I know who hates doing dishes more than I do is married to me. <laughs> and so you can imagine after meals, we'll both sort of look at each other like, oh, I'm not feeling wise, bro. Yeah. So you know who does the dishes more at our house now? I say more. I don't know if this is fair. I'm not going to look at Nikki as I say this. Oh, let me just say this. I do a lot of dishes at our house. I don't know the ratio. I'm sorry, but I do a lot of dishes at our house. I try to look around after a meal, and I look, and I try to see, well, there's dishes. I'm going to do them so she doesn't have to do them. The kids don't have to do them. They might break something anyway. I'll just do it. I don't really like doing dishes. I never have. But now, this is what I'm hesitant to say, I kind of do. You can never quote that. You just did a pump fist. You know why? It's because I love Nikki. And I know that a way I can show love to her is to take something that used to be a menial task that I hated, but because my love for her is so great, I will do that thing and find joy in it. That's how we are with the Lord. When we understand his love for us that transcends how good or bad of a day that we're having, and we start to see that he is rejoicing over us, then we return the joy because of what Jesus Christ has done. And even some things that we go, I don't know if I would do this or want to do this. All of a sudden, that's a way that we can do it for him with joy. Mm-hmm.